exactly what you would expect at the beginning of a service. Uh, welcome to Life Changing Ministries. Every day promises to be a new day. Uh, it is June 5th, 2011. Our message today is called Supermodel. Uh, if you have a bulletin, I hope it's a good place for you to take some notes. That song that you just heard, by the way, made VH1's 100 Worst Songs of the Century list. It was number 8. I don't know what it says about British culture, but um, in England, it was on the top of the charts along with five other songs from the same group. So next time somebody makes fun of you for being unrefined as an American, just bring up the name Right Said Fred. If they don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> they may not be guilty. So uh, are you in Luke 12? Yeah. Yeah. Good. So, uh, obviously the title supermodel, when we say that, you need to know that that term comes right out of the 70s. It, it can be found in English literature before then, as far back as 1942, but it was not popularly applied until people like Twiggy made it popular. Uh, there is a whole industry that came to life based on American materialism in the late 60s and was so thriving by the 70s that it is just a part of our life in ways you could never forget. Uh, because every time you go to a supermarket, every time you look at a billboard, every time you go to a movie, this is what we see. The word super, in and of itself, is not a bad word. It means high grade or quality. Sometimes you could say it means above or beyond, as in super strength or something like that, or superman, you know. Uh, but a model, think about what a model is. A model is a person or a thing that serves as a pattern for imitation or emulation. So what we're saying when we call these people supermodels is they are so far above and beyond that they're a model that everybody should imitate or emulate. Wow. That says something about our society that that term even caught on. That the hypocrisy of the term was not so much so that the world revolted at the title. Now if you're a supermodel in here, I'm sorry, you're going to be uncomfortable today. Uh, but it's okay, you're comfortable all the rest of the time, right? Boy, that's really not right, though. One of the glaring contradictions about this perceived beauty is that they're the most praised people on earth and yet the most insecure people on earth because all of their work is tied up in what they see in a mirror and it's forever changing. That is a problem with superficial uh, worth, isn't it? So our time, our culture has placed an emphasis on the superficial, on beauty, success, spirituality. They can all be easily defined in superficial terms and easily modeled and reproduced because we're the country of the assembly line. If you want to be pretty, go buy a Barbie doll and conform your life, your whole body to look exactly like that Barbie doll and America will call you pretty. What if you want to be a success in business? You can talk to me this morning. What is a success in business by worldly terms? Money. Money. Yeah, that wasn't hard to get. In fact, it was the only answer that came forth. He who has the most toys at the end of the game wins, right? I mean, if you have enough money, there's enough happiness. What else is a, is a business term of success? If you get to work as little as possible and make the most money, right? That's a success. What, what else would be, if you, if you get to retire by age 25, right? You were a, a, a business success. Am I wrong? I mean, this is what the world teaches, isn't it? Mm. So let's read Luke 12. Let's look at our superficial uh, measures of success that are easily reproduced. In Luke 12, let's start in verse 16. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. 
He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. Sounds like a capitalist, doesn't it? There's nothing wrong with capitalism. But when it is your religion, something is wrong. You know, it's an interesting thing. Our money says, in God we trust. question is, who is your God? I would suggest that it's uh, what's printed on there. What it's printed on. It actually got an idol, complete with emblems and a religious saying on it. In God we trust. The problem is, the God that they're trusting in is money. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Come on, isn't that what all Americans are looking for? The easy life, the American dream. Nice house, picket fence, maybe a couple kids as long as it doesn't inconvenience you or change your body in any way. Beautiful cars, beautiful people that everybody admires. Take life easy. Eat, drink. You might have to go purge afterwards. You might have to diet three months out of every year. But eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, listen to this. If God says something that he tells us not to say, what does that mean? Right? Jesus himself said, if you call your brother a fool and say to him, Raka, you're in danger of hellfire. But what does God say to a man? who wants an easy life full of things that are laid up for him so he can eat, drink, and be married. What are the first words out of his mouth? You can say it. You fool. You fool. Now we could get into a linguistics lessons and try to justify why God used the word fool and tells us we ought not speak to a brother like that. Let me just suggest to you, he has the right. Now, the Proverbs say that a fool says in his heart there is no God. Would it be fair to say this man had said there was no God? Oh, he probably never verbalized it. He just lived like it, didn't he? He lived like his goal in life was to make himself happy. So let me ask you, can you define business success as he who has the most money according to the Bible? Probably not. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. What would be a business success in the Bible? A business, a life that is rich towards God. An amazing thing is to be rich towards God, we have to be rich towards one another. But our models of business are those who have acquired the most stuff. That's the American way. And it's easily reproduced, isn't it? I mean, don't we buy book after book after book about how to be a success in life? How many of them tell you give everything away? Well, just the one you're holding. Yeah, well... How, how about uh, how about spiritual success? Turn with me to James. Say there when you're there. My goodness, my song upset you. I'm sorry. If you ever listen to the lyrics, uh, when you get past the "I'm too sexy," he's really mocking people who are making their little turns on the catwalk. He is making fun of an attitude that says, I am too good looking for you and the rest of life. I found it ironic that people sing it in a serious way. But when I began to think about it, I couldn't help but think about the church. How about spiritual success? What is spiritual success? Uh, 
Who in here would be bold enough to venture a guess? If you just had to poll a thousand Americans about, hey, what does a successful spiritual life look like? What is one of the answers you'll get? Uh, church Good church attendance, of course, Bill. That's right. What else? Oh, somebody might say if you give, then that's good Good spiritual life. What other measurements do we use? Work. Do some works. Hey, what has to be right? What, what's required for you to be a member of the church? Your doctrine better be good, right? That's a good spiritual life. Your church attendance needs to be right. Your doctrine needs to be right. Religious. Religious? You know what, what I would say most Americans would probably say a good spiritual life is? When you feel good. Because why do they like to go to the churches that they go to? Because they feel good. And church attendance, plus right doctrine, plus feeling good, I mean, that is a healthy, spiritual life. Don't you just love Pastor so-and-so? He's so uplifting. How uplifting was Jeremiah? How uplifting was John the Baptist? But they were right, weren't they? How uplifting was Jesus if he looked at you and said, you brood of vipers, or son of the devil, or so many other things that he said? How lifting is it to be the rich young ruler that has come as the great business success of his time and Jesus looks at him and says, unless you sell everything you have, you, you're not going to make the kingdom. How lifting is that? Or the religious leaders of his time that he looks and they say, wait, are you saying only a few will be saved? And he said, yes. Make every effort to enter in through the narrow way. How lifting was that to them? And yet these are the... But is it easily reproduced? Well, sure. I mean, it is a super, a fantastic model. I mean, come to church, throw some money in the plate, believe the right things, feel good about yourself. How easily reproduced is it? We'll drive down Eldridge Road. How easily reproduced is it? You can sell a church in a box these days, right? In fact, it's being done all the time. When a message comes all the way from Rome or from Springfield, Missouri, if it's agreed on in years in advance, and given to you for your weekly consumption as fresh bread. If it's piped in through a satellite because there's nobody in your 2,000 member congregation that is competent to pastor you, we're going to get an image on a screen to pastor you. Is it not easily reproduced? Well, sure it is. But is it really a super model? That's an interesting thing. How, how about James 1? Uh, why don't somebody out there read it? Read 126 through 27. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And what was pure and faultless? Well, uh, refraining from idolatry, not being polluted by the world and acting on behalf of those who are in distress, particularly widows and orphans. Would that even make the top 100 list uh, of America? Would, would that be... I mean, when we think of a great teacher, a fantastic church, don't we talk about it in terms of how many people go there and what their annual budget is? I mean, the largest church in America is in the state of Texas because Texas is bigger, right? But is that success? And I'm not speaking about that church. I'm talking about just the American dream. Is that success? No. When's the last time you heard somebody being praised on a national level because they cared for widows and orphans? They refused to plunge into the same flood of dissipation everybody around them is? And 
There were no idols in their lives. No, we couldn't say that. We all tune in weekly a couple times a week to watch a show called American Idol. Right? And, and what is the American Idol, by the way? And look, I'm, I'm as guilty as you are quiet right now. Uh, it, we, we, we do it in my house all of the time. What is the American Idol? It's the most talented, good-looking, marketable person. Isn't it? And it really is the American Idol. They make it correctly. And sometimes we, we can take cute and fuzzy and market it. Sometimes it's sultry and sensual. Have you always noticed, though, that no matter how young, no matter what they look like when they come in, no matter how normal, they always end up being more conformed to an image of a supermodel? Yeah. Because this is what America does. In fact, I think Matthew asked for a prophecy. Uh, Ashley, Matthew asked for a scripture to be read. Joy had it memorized because it's in her heart. She began to quote to us Romans 12 and then finished it with a prophecy about not being conformed to the image of the world. Anybody in here know the name of the tag that is on your clothes? Yeah. Don't, don't speak up. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, it was Jabot jeans, tightly paired. And why boat shoes had to come out of no socks trimmed while we were all going through puberty is beyond me because our feet stank. You sit in the class and it smelled like a cat died. These trends hit the United States and everybody follows them. And you know what's funny is you go to foreign countries, they hit there too. They're about 30 years behind. You know, in India, I saw a man dressed in Elvis 1960. Las Vegas white suit. I saw that. Yeah, he was a politician. He was appealing to the masses because that's what was cool. Right? What is beautiful? It's an interesting thing. We might say in America that beauty is certain measurements. We might say beauty is thin. Beauty is certain kind of clothes, certain kind of fashions. In fact, if you if you walk through an average supermarket, you would swear that the only pretty people in the entire world are of northern European descent, wouldn't you? Yeah. They all have to have a certain color. It's like they were all from Southern California, isn't it? What are there no ladies in here that can give an idea? That's don't tell me you don't feel these pressures. <laughs> Why do you dye your hair? Why do we have certain colored contacts? Why do we wear what we wear? Could it be that all around us we're being told that the best model that we should emulate is on a magazine cover or on a billboard? Is that not true? I mean, somebody stand up to preach your life. It'd be okay with me. As Americans, kind of like supermodels, we've learned to project beauty and confidence to the world. Why? Because we're Americans. We walk differently than the rest of the world. Did you know that? Michael walking through Germany makes a statement. He does. The Germans don't walk and talk like us. You sit in an airport in India and every person looks at Matthew. There's no way around it. The way that we carry ourselves, our shoulders <laughs> carried back, our chest slightly stuck out, the way that our women walk around, it stands out. We project confidence all over the world. In fact, they mistake it many times and sometimes not mistakenly. For arrogance. As Americans, we've learned to do that, just like a supermodel. But ironically, supermodels, who are often the most perceived to be the most beautiful people, are the most insecure. 
They're praised all of the time, but full of self-image issues. What's one problem that you know that that industry has in the way of an eating disorder? Somebody name it. Anorexia nervosa. Yeah, this means the fear of being fat, right? And what do you do when you're anorexic? It's what you don't do, right? Anorexia is not defined by something that you do. It's defined by something you don't do, much like American Christianity. Not defined by something you do. Defined by all the things that you don't do. You know? Are you uh, in love with the Lord? Well, I don't smoke. I don't drink. A lady chastised me again. The second time in a couple months, God might be trying to tell me something about a supermarket shopping cart because apparently Christians always go put those things back up, even if they're not theirs. Apparently, that is, what would Jesus do on a bracelet? Should say, return shopping carts. I mean, what he aspires to do is work for Whole Foods. I'm not kidding. I was standing talking with some friends. There's a shopping cart there. I saw it kind of blowing by, so I stopped it. I didn't leave my conversation and go put it up. I just stopped it from rolling. The woman says, hey, you know the return is right there. Yes, ma'am, thank you. Here, give it to me. I'll go put it up with mine. I said, actually, it's not even mine. It's okay. She goes, no, this is what Christians would do. You mean be smarmy? Is that what Christians would do? You, you mean Jesus, the Word of God, incarnated so that we could return our shopping carts. This is what defines Christianity. That's what Christians do. I was drinking a Snapple. I know none of y'all drink those things. But I was drinking a Snapple and I took off the cap and they put sayings under them. I don't know why. I didn't, I've never noticed that before. I said, don't put the cart before the horse. I found that strangely <laughs> So anorexia nervosa is when you will not eat. And what are some of the symptoms of not eating? Well, you might get gaunt, right? Did you know that anorexia is considered a psychiatric disorder? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Refusing to put food in your mouth is considered a mental illness. It's the mental illness that has the highest morbidity rate. Nothing that you could endure. Not some awful, horrible, difficult things like schizophrenia. Not bipolar disorders. None of the manias. Nothing that you could endure is as dangerous to a human being as anorexia. Yeah. You know what falls in the same category? Believe. What an interesting thing. Hey, Eric, I didn't come here to hear about eating disorders. If you're willing to accept it, I would suggest that the same problem that supermodels have, to look a certain way, to project a certain image, they couldn't, they couldn't eat because if they ate, it would fundamentally change who they are. The American church does the same thing. We take in as little word of God as is possible to still feel good about ourselves and be entertained. Because if we took in enough of it, it would fundamentally change who we are. And when we do take it in, like you go to a Bible conference, you go to a youth rally, right? You've acquired fire. What do you do when you get back to church? You go purge it all. You get rid of it. Because ultimately it felt good for a moment, but that's not who you want to be. You want to be an American-style Christian. One who's good-looking. One who's rich. One who is not inconvenienced. One who has an easy life. One who acts like a fool. 
This is what American Christianity has often become. If you don't believe me, go preach any of the great sermons of the Bible. Preach what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Read it verbatim in church. And if they shake their head yes, but don't do it, then it proves the point. And if they throw you out of the church or leave while you're preaching because you read it, that also proves the point. If they do anything other than what the people of the Bible did, which is answer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then it shows that we've done something wrong. Something is superficial and off base. Why don't you turn with me to Psalm 139. These eating disorders are classified as psychiatric disorders. They have the highest morbidity rate in all of the psychiatric diagnosis. You know, one of the most interesting things about bulimia, about anorexia, and I've realized very well when I say those words, many of you may have struggled with them. One of the first conversations that my mother ever had with my wife, she was so thin. I've sat down and I've talked with my mom and said, hey, I think Jen may have a problem. Would you go talk to her? Uh, Jen didn't have a problem. She just was only 15 or whatever. It's normal to be skinny like a bean pole at 15. But it is so common. It's everywhere because it's forced upon us the image of what we should be. And what if the image is not even right? Do you know what the biggest side effect other than death of anorexia and bulimia is? The inability to reproduce. Absolute, total infertility. I want you to think about this glaring contradiction here. I want to be as appealing as humanly possible to everyone of the opposite sex. In fact, I want to be desired by everyone in the world. But I'm not capable of reproducing. And I'm going to literally kill myself and destroy my life to do it. What would be the point of attracting a man? Isn't that interesting? And When we say it's superficial, we all kind of know these things already, don't we? And yet, they can still demand salaries. You know what, what one definition of supermodel was? Somebody who'd been on the cover of every major magazine and could demand the highest salary in the market today. Had to tie it back into money somehow. Are these really the people that are worthy of emulation? Worthy of imitation? And you know that. You know it intellectually. But when it goes to the point where you put on clothes or stare in the mirror and look at your own physique, your own body, do you still know it? How did we become so insecure as a nation? How did we get into a position where the Word of God was not defining our existence and our worth anymore? I think it was anorexia. I think as we stop eating the Word of God, we stop knowing how to think about ourselves. You know in Psalm 139? Yes. In Psalm 139, let's pick up in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Now I know that's a familiar scripture. I'm going to read some more, but... Today, we couldn't say I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. What we would say is, at least about a supermodel, that she is wonderfully made and fearfully distorted. Huh. Most
most of the models that you look at, wouldn't they be wonderful, uh, beautiful people if they gained 60 or 70 pounds? Most of them would. What we're looking for now, uh, one writer called an android look. A blank stare and gaunt features. Yeah, this is this what we have problems? But as I heard that, as I read that, I thought, well, you know, that's not just the fashion world. What do most pastors want from a congregation? Oh. <laughs> they want the android look. Uh, just, just stare up front, ascend to a few creeds, attend church, feel good about yourself. You don't do it. We have a supermodel church. We really do. And what other way are we a supermodel church for before we read the rest of this? Think about this one. These people, usually of <laughs> Northern European descent, are held up to the whole world as the icon of what you should be, right? You know, everywhere I've gone in the world, they want to meet us because we're an American Christian. I'm thinking, buddy, you don't know the shoe should be on the other foot. Do you really think that an Indian Christian who's had his house burned, his legs broken, his wife's been beaten every time she's been to church but hadn't missed church in five years. Do you think that they should envy anything about American Christianity? You want me to tell you something sad? They do. They do have immediate respect when you walk in. Just by virtue of your stature, the way you walk, the clothes that you wear, they immediately stand in reverence of you. The same way every one of you knows that this entire fashion world is a lie, and yet, your heart kind of flutters at the thought that you could be yeah. That's what deception is, friends. That's what deception is. We know it's wrong, but it just kind of would be so neat, you know? Now, I see a lot of women looking at the ground right now. I tell you, the Bible is a mirror, and it will tell you how to look about yourself, how to think about yourself. If you think I'm just preaching to women with image issues, by the way, I don't think I've met an American that doesn't have an image issue. We project confidence because the truth is we're completely untested. Our Christianity never gets the rubber meeting the road. You never get a chance to endure something for the Lord. In fact, we worked our doctrines out to where we will never have that chance. This is not much different than a boy that sword fights in the backyard with a ghost, a shadow. And he's convinced he's the best in the world. And his movements are beautiful and fluid. And I mean, he must be the best, but he will never stand in a ring. Ever. Because inwardly, he's scared he might not have what it takes. Guys, when we talk about beauty and we're speaking about girls and you think of an outward appearance, you might think capability for you. It's funny. Have you, have you noticed that our standards are not the same? You know, that uh, a woman would be criticized if she's perceived to be a, a couple sizes larger than whatever the perception is she should be, but a guy, they don't ever say anything. We've defined our worth in different ways. Guys are, are handsome, are beautiful. If they're capable, they're men worthy of respect. But capable of what? Making money? Why do we ask each other, Hey, Dave, I'm Eric. It's good to meet you. What do you do for a living? We might as well be two women that walk up to each other and say, What size dress is that? In fact, maybe that's where the term comes from, sizing each other up. Yeah. See, we are the most superficial society maybe that's ever lived. 
and yet you and I are called to be something different inside of it. Look at the rest of Psalm 139. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame is not hidden from you in my baggy clothes. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This man was taking pride in the fact that his life mattered. That he had been designed by God and God had him in mind from before he was born. Does the, excuse me, does the Bible not say the same thing about you? So why can we not take our pride in it? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, the vast sum of them. Have you ever stopped to think, what does God think about me? Well, many of you in this church have ten things that the Word says about you on your mirror because I gave it to you and give it to you every few years. And it might be taped there. It's taped on ours. But after a while, it just becomes something that's taped there, doesn't it? It becomes something that, oh, you know what it says, but you don't feel it as if it's true. But then the question becomes, how often have you been eating? How often have you been reminding yourself? Did you hear when Cassidy was preaching? Boy, what a good job she did. Huh? Yeah. yeah, there should be an amen out there for that. Amen. She quoted First Peter. She said that she had to remind herself that her beauty came from a quiet spirit, a gentle nature, and it was an unfading beauty. I bet if you're all honest, you have to remind yourself that very same thing on a regular basis. And if that's not the thing, guys, like for whatever reason, I can't picture... Uh, Mr. Vallant standing in front of a mirror going, my beauty is unfading. <laughs> I'm just not seeing it. I don't think there's a morning that Charlie Brown ever woke up and said that. You may have to remind yourself frequently that you're capable to perform whatever task God has put in front of you because He's empowered you and He's qualified you. And you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. But He knows it. They all know it. But how many times are you in a situation where you're sure because you sinned or something happened? It may not be true for you. You know, my wife's got this mirror that I I, I talk about it a lot because I'm fascinated by it. Uh, we're fortunate at this place in our life, the house that we have has a, a fairly large bedroom and we kind of live in it. I, I don't know how many people we live with right now, but <laughs> eight, eight or so. Yeah, eight is enough, right? So uh, our house has always been full of people. And so this is like a retreat for us. Uh, it's a place we go hide. In fact, recently somebody gave me a refrigerator and I moved it upstairs next to my bed. I don't have any anorexia issues if you remember. Somebody came and stayed with us and said, do you realize that next to your bed is a coffee pot, a bag of cookies, and a refrigerator? I said, well, yeah, that way I don't have to get out of bed. It made perfect sense to me. I told my wife, I'm doing this for you, honey. I'm doing it for you because now you won't have to go down the stairs. <laughs> Back to this mirror. I can be on the complete other side of the bedroom, and when she turns on this mirror, it illuminates the whole room. How does a mirror illuminate a room? Well, because not only is it magnified, and it's only this big, right? It's like a car headlight. Not only is it magnified, but around it has a, a beam of illumination. So that when she looks into it, and I can see on some of your faces, you have the very same mirror, don't you? When she looks into it, it magnifies the smallest imperfection. 
And then what, of course, is sitting right next to all of that? Jim, what is sitting next to all of that? Makeup. Angie, you don't have any in your house, do you? Kara, you not in yours? Yeah, I knew I, I knew y'all wouldn't do those things. And what is the makeup for? To cover imperfections. Because, dear God, we couldn't be seen as having something that we all have. Isn't that funny? We all know that we all have them. We're just not going to see them or talk about them. Right? Hmm. An amazing thing. Would you go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 3? Cassidy, read 3 through 5. Great worth in whose sight? Okay. Now I have brothers in, in a uh, United Pentecostal tradition that would say because of this, you're not allowed to perm your hair because that's where your beauty would come from. They would say because of this, you cannot wear gold jewelry unless it's a brooch. For some reason, the brooch slipped in. Maybe somebody was selling brooches, I don't know, and they didn't have a $30,000 brooch because you met the legal requirement to have no other gold jewelry. But in any case, what you got your beehive hairdo, and you got your $30,000 brooch, you're good to go. But even in those circles, for whatever reason, you've got a few fundamentalist Baptists in the room or X that your scale's a little different, but we all got these scales, right? Don't you compete within those scales? I went to a private school. In a private school, the idea was, if we all have uniforms, then there'll be no competition and we'll cut down on that kind of stuff. No, we just competed about, you know, the kinds of belts that were not regulated. Or the kinds of shoes. Or whatever it might be. It is in our nature to do this, but where did God say beauty came from? A quiet, gentle spirit, unfading beauty, submission, he goes on to speak about. Being in right authority. These things are beautiful. Now, I know the scripture, if we're going to take it apart technically, says your beauty should not come from. So it doesn't say don't do it. I'm not mad that Jen wears makeup. I actually kind of like it. I like her just as much without it. While we're telling personal stories about Jennifer. <laughs> I went to a water park with two women one time. We went into the wave pool. That was a new thing then. There were no such thing as wave pools. This is Blue Bayou, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The mecca of the world. Right? As we entered the wave pool, one's beauty washed off. And the other didn't. At only 15 years old, that seemed like a profound thing to me. <laughs> One was merely a painting, a facade, and the other was something more substantial. Right? Now, I realize I'm still talking about superficial things, but I was 15. Give me a break. <laughs> I want you to get something, though. We can say that we can do all of these things. It's not wrong for us to have nice cars. It's not wrong for us to have money. It's not wrong for me to have all of this makeup and all these things. Because it's not where my beauty comes from. My beauty comes from the unfaith. I'm with you, right? We can scribe that down as the interpretation that you'll feel good about. Put it to the test tomorrow by wearing no makeup. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like God sees you differently when you do that? Put it to the test by introducing yourself to the next person you meet as a refuse collector. A dishwasher in the kitchen. 
And then let's begin to examine whether or not our hearts are wrapped up in what others say and think about us or whether our worth has been defined by the living God. Boy, it's quiet, isn't it? Is the thought of not being able to prepare yourself to face the world overwhelming to you? Maybe we have a problem. Some of you are out there smiling, going, oh, hey, there's, there's no problem with me there. Well, we may just not got to your problem yet. It's my church. I got all the time we need. Turn me to Luke 16. Yes. Hey, yes. David, my wise brother-in-law, would like me to clarify that it was my own wife's face who did not wash off. I come from a family of beauticians, and, uh, and I love them for it. I mean, I really do. Uh, for beauticians, they do not strike me as superficial in any way. I know that sounds odd, but they're the most down-to-earth people. The, the women on, on that side of the family really excel. They're the most down-to-earth, real people you'll ever meet, and that's what's kind of funny about them, is they're all strikingly beautiful people, and... They live in that world, but it hasn't seemed to get down in their skin the way that it does others. And uh, trust me, my family's got all kind of issues in every direction, but in that one, it is kind of unusual. So then the real question becomes, can we be in the world and not be of the world? Is it possible to be around these things and still be grounded enough in the Word to not be overcome by them? Well, apparently it is, or we wouldn't have got the prophecy out of Romans 12 today. Are you in Luke 16? Yeah. I think it comes from training ourselves to do exactly this. 16:14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. I think that there needs to be an inward leader inside of us. Something that you need to recognize is not naturally there. In fact, your inclination naturally is a wrong one. You have to train yourself to learn what God values is distinctly different than what mankind values. And what mankind at large values is distinctly different than what God values. A super model is valued for something that is going to diminish immediately and the truth is it's not real right now. Not healthy right now. Not able to reproduce right now. And yet esteemed among men. I think God would say that's disgusting. However, I met women in India who have never seen makeup. They don't know what our beauty products are and the thought of spending millions and it truthfully with a B, billions of dollars on them, is such a foreign thought they wouldn't know what to do. And they radiate beauty. You know, it, it's really kind of an awkward thing to be a man in another country with other men. I guess there were five of us. And you would like to comment on your surprise at how beautiful someone is, but you can't do that. Because what you're really saying is, I didn't expect anybody outside of our norms to be pretty. How about Pastor Saucy and his wife, my amazing, gorgeous people, glowed, you know? I mean, they glowed with Jesus. There was no question, maybe it's Maybelline. 
<laughs> they glowed with Jesus in a pink catalog and not just left their house. They glowed. And they instinctively wanted that. They wanted to be desired, just like every other human being. They wanted you to notice that they were pretty people. But what they believed made them pretty was what they did, not what they painted on themselves or their occupation. You know, it was possible to have conversations with people there, and your occupation never even came up. They talked in terms of what they had endured for Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? I believe that we need to learn how to distinguish between what men value and what God values. Turn with me to Jeremiah 2. I'm going to give you a couple scriptures out of Jeremiah. Now, if you don't remember the historical setting for Jeremiah, I'm not going to give it all to you, but in a nutshell, the nation was going astray. And God was providing some discipline so that the nation would turn around. No discipline is pleasant while you're enduring it, but the end, it raises a harvest of righteousness. So you're going to hear some things that are difficult, and I'm going to apply them to your lives because I'm not preaching somewhere else. I'm preaching right here. And know that if I'm applying them to your lives, I'm one of you. Okay? I'm applying it to my life as well. Here comes Jeremiah 2, starting in the 31st verse. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. How skilled you are in pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes, men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Though you did not catch them breaking in. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I am innocent. He is not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. I personally, with all of my heart, believe this accurately describes what is commonly called the American church. We roam wherever we want to roam, not obedient to the Lord and what He tells us to do. We're only concerned with what we don't do. And we look great on the outside, but we're anorexic as all get out. And if somebody gives you a good full meal, we go purge it as fast as possible because we're scared it will fundamentally change who we are and the way that we live. Am I preaching today? Yeah. Yeah, amen. Jeremiah 7 has another interesting passage, and since we're here, we might as well get it. Because I know after hearing these things, you're saying, please, feed me more word. Please. And when you leave, you're going to meditate on it or digest it. Isn't that crazy? Somebody would want the taste of food. Want it. But as soon as they've had it, refuse to let their body benefit from it and digest. Want to spit it back up. But isn't that exactly what we do when we hear a good message? But it does not make it down to the nourishing parts of all of our life. We just spit it back up. Isn't that exactly what we do? I've done it more times than I can count, except I'm usually the one serving the meal. How crazy is that? Now, these are difficult messages to preach. It'd be a whole lot easier for me to just look at you and say, you're a supermodel. 
product of the system that we created. Drop some change in the plate on the way out the door. And please hurry, because there's another crowd coming. And you're that important to us. It would be a whole lot easier to do that. We could have a drive-through healing line like I saw in Tomball, Texas. Drive down 249, look to your right. Big sign, drive-through healing line. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time. But what I'm hoping is that this word getting out in, in you can fundamentally change who you are, how you look at things, how you perceive yourself. I hope that your image issues go away because you know that you're more than a conqueror after reading. I hope that you act the way God's word makes you feel. You know the biggest lie in the world is, He made me angry. He made me sad. You made me feel like a man's woman. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Nobody makes you do anything. Remember, you're Americans. Everything that you've done is a choice. You choose to be subject to those things. You choose to be angry. You choose to be whatever you choose to be. Our king has given us the power to choose. I preached that a few weeks ago and dialed in. You going Jeremiah 7? Yes. Here comes the first verse. This is the word that the Lord, of the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of Baal's house. Stand at the gate of a football stadium. Stand at the gate of Milan's fashion runway. Where did he tell Jeremiah to go? We are preaching this message to the Lord's people and no one else. So let's not think about the lost here. And they have proclaimed this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel. By the way, what are they there for? To worship the Lord. <laughs> Reform your ways and your actions. And I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods in your own harm, to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? Does that not ring with a certain clarity to you? It does to me. The biggest problem with evangelizing in America is that everybody is already safe. And why are they already safe? Because they attend church. Because they feel good about themselves. And because they know the right doctrine. Behavior never comes into it. And if behavior does make it into it, it's only what we don't do. Do you love Jesus for what He didn't do? I mean, it's great that He didn't sin. Is that why you love Him, that He didn't sin? If he just didn't sin, what would that have to do with you? You love him because of what he did in the Father's name for you. So when we say we're Christians, is it because of what we don't do? 
Or is it because of what we do in Jesus' name for the Father? Wow. Well, our theology has led us astray. We've said that that very thought that I've just expressed to you is adding to the cross. Works will not bring you to the cross. But when you are born again, when your nature changes, you cannot help but do its work. And one clear way to know someone has not been born again is when they are not doing this work. We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching. So when God is watching and he sees something that he doesn't like, not in his neighbor's house, but in his house, what did he do? He sent a prophet. He sent somebody to confront the people. What was their reaction? They threw him in a hole. And this is what the American society does with anybody that does not toe the party line. If you suggest something is beautiful that is different than what they say, if you suggest that Christianity is more than what they say, you are relegated to preaching in storefront churches, not on the TV sets and purple thrones. What is the gospel of America today? Not much different than the business gospel. He who has the most money wins. Isn't that what you're here? God wants you rich. Why would he want you rich, saints? What would Americans do with their richness? What are you already doing with your richness? Really, the most industrious, prosperous, rich nation on the world in the world is so insecure that what we need to do is ask God to bless us more. That's what we need. See, we have not learned to define what is beautiful. You know what's beautiful? When Bethany gave away her Barbie doll. That was beautiful. No, it's beautiful. When somebody acts like Jesus, nobody knew about it but him and Jesus. It's beautiful. Pure, faultless, unadulterated love for God. No motive of man tainting it. This is what our Christianity is supposed to look like. And instead, we've settled for looking like the Joneses, Joneses and feeling good about ourselves. Turn with me to Ezekiel 13. I believe this is a prophetic word for what is going on in our religious system today. Is that interesting at all to you? Would you want to know what God is saying about our religious system today? Or would we be better off with our fingers in our ears and stomping our feet? So, well... Eric, that's great. This is all out there. I'm suggesting that because we've been insecure in who we are in Christ, everything that's going on out there is affecting us in here. That we've not yet learned to be in the world and not of it. That we've not yet learned to be the shining light on a hill that can change everything around us. We're still having our light dimmed by their darkness. We've become co-participators. Many times it's just through tacit approval. Right? We know it's wrong, but do we say so? Or did we just kind of go with the flow? Our Christian lions have had their teeth cool. When is the last time you heard a popular preacher, somebody that has got nationwide recognition, say anything that was not generally accepted by everyone? Right? I mean, think about it. You'll struggle to do that. You'll struggle to find a single, seriously controversial statement. In fact, we have to invent controversy. Is that what the lives of the apostles look like? The things they were saying were revolutionary to their day, their time, to the plan of God, to everything. We might need to rethink this. Are you in Ezekiel 13? Yes. Look at verse 10. 
Because they lead my people astray, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. When you follow that through and continue to read, this flimsy wall falls not only upon the hearers, but those that covered it with whitewash. Can you imagine what would happen tomorrow if to be a Christian in the United States, to wear the little crosses that everybody wears, to be on a church roll anywhere, meant you were likely to be killed by the end of the day. Can you imagine how mass the exodus would be? Theologians would pop on Fox News immediately and explain why it was okay to do this. That's inconceivable to us because we've never been threatened. We've never been tested. That's why mission trips are so good. You get outside of our little bubble and you will find out that to be a Christian anywhere in the world usually risks your life and you find out it's worth doing. It's beautiful. In fact, you will go there thinking that you're going to bring something to them and you will leave there with them having given something to you. A new perspective, a new outlook. The secularist goes to another country and pities them for what they don't have. The man with eyes to see comes back and pities us because of what we do. We can know these things. But I'm curious. What makes you feel beautiful or capable? Where does it come from? I think it's funny to go get a pedicure. I think it's hilarious. I don't know how they painted those little things on my wife's toes. You know? Must be really needy little utensils. I think it's cute as all get out. But if you need that to feel a sense of self-worth, then why do you need it? If your job title changed tomorrow and that would make you feel like less of a man, why? You think that the church might be anorexic? There's a whitewashed wall that is all around us. And God is going to bring it crashing down on those who taught it and those who participated in it. And it's the I'm okay, you're okay, let's all just believe the right things gospel. I promise that it is. Matthew 24 says that the love of most will grow cold. What would it be like if bowls of wrath were being poured out? <laughs> the entire American church would think God had let them down because they weren't supposed to endure anything. Never mind the fact that all over the world, Christians are enduring everything. Turn with me to Ezekiel 33, then we'll get back into the Newer Testament. Maybe. I know, it's noon. And since it's noon, the way the traditional church works is, we got to go home, right? I mean, it's noon. Jesus doesn't work past noon. The Holy Ghost wouldn't have anything to say past noon. I've been here, I've done my time, I've done my service. Now let me feel good about myself and go home. I remember, Lindsay's not in here. She's working with kids today. I remember Lindsay's first service with us. And I'm only choosing her at this moment because her life's changed so radically. She'd been in church all of her life. But her first service with us, she looked at her watch and goes, my God, it's not over yet. That's what she said. Because we're used to going, showing up, doing our time and leaving and feeling really good about ourselves. And if there's an earthquake in Haiti or a nuclear disaster in Japan, 
we'll be the first to send some money to them. What were you doing the week before that earthquake? What will you be doing when the news stops telling you about Japan's nuclear disaster? We are so deprived of a sense of worth for working for God that we jump on any bandwagon that comes by until it passes by. Am I wrong? How many of you got flags on your cars right after 9-11? Right? Got one right out front of your house, but it's not there today. Isn't that an amazing thing, how reactionary we are? Do you think God is moved by those circumstances? What was right the day before 9-11 ought to be right the day after 9-11. Should it? Those things don't change. But we've not learned to define our Christian walk by them. We only know how to react to an emotion. And I'm suggesting that God can fundamentally change who you are, how you see yourself, how you live. That Christianity will permeate every conversation of the day the same way that the light of the sun permeates the air everywhere in the world. The air can't get away from it. It is what makes life. That's a different thought, isn't it? In Ezekiel 33, listen to these words. As for you, son of man, your countrymen are talking together. This is 33.30. About you by the walls and at the doors of the houses saying to each other, Come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do. What does that tell you? Regular church attenders. And sit before you to listen to your words. But they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express, express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. It's almost as if that could have been written today, isn't it? Oh yeah. What is church to us? Is it just a beautiful love song? Does it matter to you if your pastor is hideously ugly? Does it matter to you if your chairs are uncomfortable? If the worship team is out of tune? Why do we like what we like? Do you have any idea what Ezekiel looked like? No, it's a good thing. Because if he was buck-toothed, if he was fat and bald and was born with one leg shorter than another or something, you probably would not immediately love him because we're Americans. But you love him because you know what he did and said. See, what is valued with God is not valued with me. But who are we supposed to be? I'm convinced that on that day, the heroes will be men that you never knew their names. Amen. And the men that everybody knows their names, some of them will make it, some won't. But I bet that they are all proud to be in the back of the line. Yes. Because our king values things that men never do. Do we require our ministry leaders to look and act certain ways? I mean, to be politician-like? You know, I've been members of churches that could not receive a pastor under the age of 60. I often wondered what they would do with Jesus. How about that? Why? Because it doesn't fit our image and conception of what a pastor should be. He doesn't look like a pastor. How about this? This would be in 1 Samuel 15. 
I said we were going to go to the New Testament. This will be my last Old Testament scripture, then we'll go to the New Testament. Don't give up on me. You're going to want to hear this. First Samuel, you're going to be in 15. And look, I'm going to feed you when this is over. That will make sure that if you have any eating disorders, we'll cure them right now. We'll make you feel good. You know, the Proverbs tell us that the righteous eat until their hearts are content, but the bellies of the wicked grow hungry. So don't get all in the wicked side. Let's eat. Y'all in 1 Samuel 15? Okay, have you ever been sitting in a room and... Hey, put your finger on 1 Samuel 15, verse 13. Have you ever been sitting in a room and somebody said something and you're like, that's not true? Like maybe maybe you were listening to a presidential debate. I know those guys would never lie. But one of them says something to the effect of, you know, I've created or saved uh, a billion jobs. Right? And you said... I hear the bleeding of sheep. That's what the Bible calls BS. The bleeding of sheep. Listen to this. It's 1 Samuel 15, verse 13. I'm in 2 Samuel. Ah. Somebody read it for me. 1 Samuel 15, verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. What's the next line? But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? Samuel said, There's BS. Bleeding of sheep. (laughs) No. The same proclaiming, I have done everything that the Lord has commanded of me. Samuel can hear the sheep bleeding that he was supposed to have killed. This is very much the position of the American church. Lord, we've done what you've asked of us. And you can hear the deafening sound of bleeding sheep all around us. Because what we think that He's required of us is that we attend church that we feel good about ourselves, and maybe if there's a disaster, we give some money to someone. When what the Bible actually wants of us is a recognition, a a coming to Jesus meeting that beats our chest and says, there's nothing in me good unless you put it there. But I believe that you're putting it there. And I want to live every day in this new way. How about this? Go to Matthew 9. No, go to Luke 18. There. Now I'm not encouraging you to say the word BS. A lot of people are not going to understand it. But I do want to tell you this. I have been in meetings with some of you and heard bleeding sheep. Did you do it or not do it? Well, you know, I don't really know. Bleeding sheep. So I might just look at you and go, eh, eh, eh. So is it a goat or is it sheep? My initials are BS. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Don't let your life be defined by it. So here we go. Here. Yeah, I don't know how I get into these situations. Charlie, you're supposed to help me out of these. Okay. Here, here comes Luke 18. So in Luke 18, that very first verse says, Then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So the context of this parable is that we should pray without stopping. He must have known that most people are going to give up if they don't get this command. 
Now with that in mind, let's look at the kind of prayer and the place at which our lives start with Him. It starts in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I don't drink or smoke. I pay my taxes and my tithes. I return shopping carts at Whole Foods. I have the right bumper stickers on my car. My church is better than everyone else's church. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm not talking about feeling bad about yourself when you pray. I'm talking about honestly taking a sober judgment not of what you believe, but what you do. Letting your beauty come, not from some mission trip, not from some deed done in the future, but from the confidence that when the Lord speaks, you do what He says. A submissive spirit. I'm suggesting that we should be in a situation that the world goes, that's yucky and I don't know why they would live like that. But stands back in respect and all. Rather than a situation that makes us look exactly like everyone else. 76% of our nation is Christian. The tax collector turned around. You follow this parable through the other Gospels, you find out it was given right after Matthew, the tax collector. Okay. Look, at, look at Matthew 9. What did Matthew look like? What kind of job did he have? How esteemed was a tax collector? Despised. So we don't know if Matthew was ugly. We know Matthew had a bad job. But why do you love Matthew? As Jesus went on from there, Matthew 9 verse 9. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. This is what makes Matthew a believer. It doesn't matter what he thought about Jesus. It doesn't matter whether or not he could confess Jesus. When Jesus said jump, did he do it? That is beautiful. I'm not suggesting that you need to be in a foreign land preaching the gospel to other people. I'm not suggesting that you need to empty your savings account or anything else. I'm suggesting that when Jesus says, we say, yes, sir, and define that as beautiful. That it be more important to us than, hear me, ladies, putting on our face in the morning. That it would be more important, hear me, man, than where you work and the title on your business card. I'm suggesting that it ought to fundamentally define the way that you live. That every question really comes down to, am I following Him in this decision or not? And I have found very few that He's neutral on. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, 
Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what it means. Friends, when we take an honest assessment of our own lives, when we look and see what is beautiful by His standards and what's not, what we're doing is proclaiming our need for it. And that in itself is beautiful. If you didn't know anything else about Matthew other than he was obedient this one time, if you didn't know that he wrote a book, if you didn't know that he died for the faith, if you didn't know that he was hunted in the latter parts of his life, if you didn't know those things about him, this one thing would be beautiful, wouldn't it? Yes. Do you remember a woman brought an alabaster jar and broke it at Jesus' feet? He said, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Not beautiful because it was alabaster. Not beautiful because it was expensive, although it was. Beautiful because it's exactly what the Father wanted when He wanted it in a way she couldn't have known except to hear His voice. He's being prepared for His death. Colossians 1, the 10th and 11th and 12th verse teaches us that He has strengthened us with all power. He has qualified us as His inheritance. That's what the Word teaches us. This means that there is nothing that you are not qualified to do that He tells you to do. It means that there is nothing that you don't have the strength to do that He tells you to do. It means that He has given you right standing, right power, right authority for everything He has told you to do. And friends, when you do it, it is beautiful. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says you're a holy nation chosen people, a royal priesthood. How do you view yourself? We need to learn to define ourselves as the Bible does and soberly look at our lives and examine whether or not there is the fruit of a Christian there. Our last scripture today is Proverbs 31. Turn with me to the 30th verse. Tell me when you're there. Please don't let anybody in this room who has a Bible not be there. There, there, there. You don't have a Bible, look on with the person next to you. If you weren't happy about anything else that I said, we're going to eat here in a few minutes. You got to be happy about that. You in Proverbs 30? Yes. Now you're supposed to be in Proverbs 31. <laughs> Charm is deceptive. <laughs> You didn't get that. That's called the double entendre. But in any case, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Is to be praised. You remember what we were supposed to give God here this morning? Remember halal? To shine. To rave. To celebrate. To boast. To be clear about. A woman who fears the Lord is to be celebrated, is to be boasted about, is to be raved about. She is to shine in a clear way. Those things are said about somebody who fears the Lord enough to do his will. You tell me what is beautiful. Skin is going to sag. That's just part of gravity. Going to. My hair is falling out. Some of yours is changing colors. 
But the person who learns to be obedient to the Lord is a rave before the living God. An exciting party. It's so much so that he said, I delight in giving you the kingdom. He's actually said, my father delights in giving you the kingdom. She is to be praised. You are the bride of Christ, saints. And when the fear of the Lord and obedience to his will is what motivates you, you're a raving success. You're to be boasted about it. You should feel great about yourself when he said to do something and you did it, no matter what it is. You should pray and beat your breast and ask for forgiveness. When you have not done what he said to do, many of our lives are defined by shame and guilt over things we did that we shouldn't have done. That's an important perspective. But I think the more important perspective is that your life is defined by what you do, not what you don't do. Do something for the Lord. You're not earning salvation. You're showing yourself to be saved. Go love Him enough to act like Him. And it's beautiful. Better than going to get a facial. Better than going to get your hair did, ladies. It is. And make you beautiful and eternal ways. Matthew's going to play a song. We're going to worship together. This worship is not for an altar call, but if there's an altar call, praise God, it's beautiful when you do what the Lord tells you to do. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful thing. Why is it beautiful? Because it symbolizes a man doing what God told him to do, even when it cost him his very life. Did you know that every time you eat this meal, what you're proclaiming is that you will do the same thing and that it's beautiful. A man bleeding, dying, naked to the world is detestable. But to God, it is beautiful. It is beautiful to God you might not need everybody around you. You have to learn to define your life by this increase. Unless you're not a success if your kids like you your success if you have taught them what the Lord teaches you. That is, you are not a success if you can provide everything in the world. You're a success if you can teach them that the Lord is the provider of everything you need. You see, these are ways that we can live beautiful lives. And it really is all that matters. So y'all stand to your feet. The way that we take communion in this church I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. I'm saying it's the way we do. Is it is open to anyone who passes their very personal test. Are you serious about the Lord? Not are you perfect. Not are you without sin. But are you serious about the Lord? And is your heart to say, Lord, I want you to thoroughly change me. I've been anorexic. And I want you in every part of my life. If that is your heart, you're free in this church to take communion. If your pastor doesn't like it, he can take it up with his boss. If you're here, this is how we do it. Nobody will look at you funny if you do or don't. It's up to you, but I do ask that you pass that test. If your children want to take communion, I ask that they pass that test. Let this be a very personal decision between you and the Lord. Let it be an act of beautiful obedience. Not some vain ritual simply to be performed because it's the first of the month. Okay. That'd be an act of worship. Amen? Amen. Amen.
this meant that I accepted her and that she accepted me. It meant that the authority that God had given us, his divine commands, were now ours as a couple. My will was hers, her will was mine, and we were both bound in him. We would also share a glass of wine as an engagement. She would hear things from me that no one else heard. I would hear things from her that no one else heard. We would be uniquely joined in a way that nobody else got to share. This is very much the symbolism behind our communion meal. Our Lord is bringing you right into his covering. He's saying whatever your name was, you now bear my name. You'll hear from me things that the rest of the world will not hear. I just want you to be one with me, even as I'm one with the Father. This is the call. And just like a Jewish bride, when you drank of his cup, you were saying, I want all that. That's it. Whatever it costs my whole life long, I'm with you. Israel, the Jewish bride, his family had to pay. Picked out to compensate for the loss of the donor. Jesus paid your dowry. But he took you back to No debts. Whatever happened yesterday doesn't matter. What matters is what you do for him tomorrow because you love him. You want to express faith in If that is your goal, with me now. When we chew this unleavened wafer that has been pierced, that has stripes on it, it is made very much the way they made them in Egypt. We're promising never again to be anorexic in the Word. Never again to be bulimic. To consume the Word of God and let it change our lives. I quite literally want you to chew on that. was very sad and people mourned. But we know that that was not the end. 
We get to celebrate the empty grave, the risen groom. We get to celebrate that for the first time in our lives, He has taken our ashes and given us beauty. He has taken our mourning and given us gladness. He has bestowed upon us a crown. What a beautiful expression. That's what we celebrate now. Amen. Can y'all give the Lord a hand clap? Jesus, you know I'm in love.